you're listening to an archive presentation of Center Stage. This episode was originally recorded in 2012. Thank you, everybody, and welcome to Center Stage. Today's guest grew up in New Jersey, where as a teenager, he started training and competing as a long jumper. In 1981, while attending the University of Houston, he began to emerge as a dominant sprinter. In a remarkably long and illustrious career, he won nine Olympic gold medals and matched Jesse Owens' four gold medal feat at the 1936 Olympics. He's the only American male to qualify on five Olympic teams. Over the course of two decades, he frequently topped the world rankings and set world records in the long jump, 100 meters, 200 meters, and 4 by 200 meter relays. His world record for the indoor long jump has stood for over 25 years. He was voted Sportsman of the Century by the International Olympic Committee and the Olympian of the Century by Sports Illustrated. He also helped transform track and field from its nominal amateur status to its current professional status, which has enabled its athletes to have more lucrative and longer-lasting careers. Please welcome one of the greatest athletes to ever step on the track and field in a pair of spikes, King Carl Lewis. That's you. Now, you're, you're one of the most famous people in the world. Track and field is huge around this world, right. but it's not as big in the United States, especially over the last decade. Why do you think that's so? Well, um, it's really a complicated subject. I mean, basically, track and field is an amateur sport. Mm -hmm. You know, we make money, and it's, it's, they call themselves professional, but it's still kind of the same leadership they've had all along. And as long as the structure is the same, the business doesn't change. It's hard even for me to, to explain to athletes how they have to take charge of their careers. And, and one of the things that, that I wanted to do at a young athlete, I started my own company when I was a teenager, and focused on marketing myself as a brand, young, and then performing as well, mm -hmm. where now they just kind of run and expect people to give them money, you know? And, and so you really have to change the, the culture of the way people think. It seems though that this country gets locked in during the Olympics, but there's other great meets during the year and this country doesn't lock itself in. Is it for that reason that you just said? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing is, is that when I, when I give this analogy all the time, we all watch the Super Bowl, we all watch the World Series. Mm -hmm. um, you can't remember the score of the World Series games. You remember who won. You remember that great home run. So, so therefore, you have to make it captivating for the people. Who are they following? What are they following? Why do they want to see you in the off-Olympic years? Um, what is your story? You know, what makes you interesting? I think all of those things you have to bring into the story. And that's why it's so great with, like, the Yankees or these professional teams. They make it about the team and about the emotion that people like to follow. Now, you've been somewhat critical in the past of the U.S. track and field program. Mm -hmm. What bothers you about what they're doing? Well, the biggest thing is that they have not focused on really creating a professional business. Uh, the reason uh, the NFL or Major League Baseball or hockey, the reason they're successful is because they're a business and they understand that and they market themselves to the public, not just from a business standpoint, but also in the community, whereas track and field is still a collection of people and they haven't sat down and said, let's come together and how can we present ourselves to the public in a way that they would like to see it. All right, so the next Olympics that we'll see track and field 2012 this year in London, how do you think our team will do? Well, I think the team will do very well. I mean, last year, um, China did extremely, last, last Olympics rather, China did extremely well. But of course, the home team normally does extremely well. And I think Britain is a much um, smaller country. So I think we'll do better than we did actually the last time around. All right, now in 2011... Uh, you attempted to run for the New Jersey State Senate in the 8th District. Mm -hmm. It didn't fall through. They said you are a full-time resident of Jersey. Number one, why did you want to do this? There are three factors. Um, first of all, I've been back in that community now for four years. And 
I do a lot with the school. My foundation works with the schools and I've been coaching. And one of the things I'm most proud about is that four years ago, you know, our, our high school, I went to Willingboro High School. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, we were the worst team in South Jersey. And this winter, they were state champions. So when I saw the, the, the inequity in the school systems, especially New Jersey, who has so many municipalities and so many school districts, there is no um, continuity in the way people think. It's, it's, it's like everything's OK as long as you're over there. Right. So I, I really thought it was time to get someone that had a voice that saw a broader vision because I've been around the world. I've traveled. I've lived and, and just kind of bring those ideas into our district and, and try to uh, put a voice in Trenton that's talking like that so that we need to come together to solve the problems in was Jersey. It, was it a just decision, Carl, that they, well, they didn't allow you to run? Well, the reality is that the from day one, the um, uh, the governor you know, led, just said right away, boom, let's get him out of the race. Is that and because the thing he's is, up a different point? Well, of, of course, exactly. Okay. And it was politics. And, and the thing about it is that I was raised from 2 to 17 in New Jersey. And then I've been back here four years. So they can sit here and try to go through the minutia. But there are people that are in office that weren't raised there, didn't come there and all that. You know, it's over. All right. So the, the <laughs> governor is Chris Christie that we're talking about. So my question to you is, is this something that you will pursue? Will you do it again? I'm not even sure because it was it was an impulsive thing. Uh -huh. um, a week before I made a decision, I wasn't thinking about it. Uh, it just happened. That quickly? Oh, really? it was that quickly because um, a, a number of issues happened, some things happened. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to run for, for office. So I'm, I'm going to take it one year at a time. You know, you have kind of railed against authority in your life. You've been a, a man of your own conviction. Has that hurt you sometimes? And how did that come about? Was that from your parents? Oh, oh yeah, of course. Um, of course, it's from my parents. And of course, it's probably hurt me. My mother was the first person to go to college in her family. My father was the first. They met at Tuskegee Institute, uh, graduates, and they moved to Montgomery where um, they became friends with Dr. King and, and uh, the, the civil rights movement. They were heavily involved in that in the 50s. Rosa Parks was a good friend of my mother's. Um, and Dr. King baptized my brothers before I was born. So... We were involved in that movement. So I was so raised in, your DNA. in the 60s, exactly. Right. In the 60s, I was raised in 70s, do what you think is right, accept the consequences. And so that's what I always did. So, so when I got into track and field, I looked around and I said, this isn't right. You know, we're running hard. You know, guys in other sports are doing their thing. So let's change the rules. So I, I never really looked at it as I'm going against the system. I looked at it as trying to right a wrong. All right, we're going to go back to Carl Lewis's childhood when we return right here on Center Stage. So stay here. Welcome back to Center Stage, everybody. We're talking with track and field legend Carl Lewis. That must be a nice legend. I, and I'm still alive. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Normally, it's like they're saying it like he was around. Right, you <laughs> are a legend. All right, so let's go back to um, you said you were born in Birmingham, Alabama, grew up in Willingboro, New Jersey. Yes. Your parents did what for a living? Your mom was a teacher. Both were teachers. Okay. And um, education was very important for us. Mm -hmm. um, my mother started a track team because they would not put girls track and field in the high school. So she went and started a program. Mm -hmm. And so in a couple of years, there were hundreds of kids. And I, I grew up thinking it was normal to be trucking around the track meets and to have all your friends doing what you do and sharing your parents with the community. I, I thought it was normal. You grew up in a very accomplished family. Uh, they had big ideas and they, they were smart people. And I remember my sister was always really smarter than me and the pressure on me was immense because I go to the school after she did. Right. So how tough was it for you and being part of such an accomplished family? When everyone knew Bill Lewis, first of all, my father, I mean, cause he had the whole town shut down. Right. And my sister was the best athlete ever for her whole Carol. life, Carol, mm -hmm. and who's two years younger. But my oldest brother was one of the best sprinters in the state. 
My second brother ended up becoming a professional soccer player. He was drafted by the Cosmos. Cleve. So Cleve. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I was kind of a late bloomer. So in 10th grade, I was 5'5". Five, five. My mother's 5'7". My sister was 5'8". And they had to lock up the knives. You know? <laughs> so, so I always thought I was like, our family was like a, you know, a litter. And mm-hmm. I was the runt of the family. And I thought I was destined to be that runt. So it was, it was a lot to look up to. Now, track and field was obviously huge in your family. Did you play other sports and were you good at any of them? Uh, I did. I played soccer for six years. I followed my one brother. Mm-hmm. We swam, uh, gymnastics. My mother taught dance. So we we did mo- uh, uh, multiple things and also got into music and played instruments. And so we our parents felt keep you busy and keep you going. And and um, of course, we had to come home and study every day. And it was so busy and all of that. But it just seemed so normal. All right. Now, at the age of 15, you sprout up two inches, two and a half inches. You grow in, and all of a sudden you start to blossom into a pretty good athlete. You shave a second off your time running, 25-foot mark in the long jump. Did you say to yourself, okay, I can be really good at this now? Um, When I was 15 and turning 16, my junior year is when it all exploded, and I jumped 25 feet. That's when it it hit me. It just happened all of a sudden, Well, at the end of 10th grade, I was Mm 5'5". I graduated at 6 feet. So that was kind of on the way to this massive growth spurt. You know, all these times when I was running young, I was working on technique, and I was getting this stuff. And still losing, you know, but wow. when I started growing, I just started winning. But after that year, my junior year, when I jumped 25-9 and I ran 9-3 in 100 yards, I was like, wow, you know, I could I could actually get a scholarship in college and do this stuff. I wasn't sure about the Olympics. It was a dream then. But but I realized that was it. So my goal was to be um, national champion in high school and set the high school national record. That was my goal at the end of that year. Because you became a good athlete after the growth spurt, I've got to ask you this. How did you blow a 40-yard lead in a hurdle relay race? Okay. <laughs> that was it was it was in 10th grade. Right. That was that was just before the growth spurt here. <laughs> <laughs> and I did blow that lead to a great hurdler. And it was a it was a really tough time. And I tell you, we had a great team. And I was the slowest. I was a 10th grader. And they put me last so they could say, hold the lead. And I could not hold this lead. And it was horrible, miserable. But my father was one of the coaches on the high school team. And I remember finishing and of course I'm crying and I'm all upset and and he came in here and said what happened and I said well my feet were slipping because my spikes were too long short and I goes okay well get longer spikes walk out the room <laughs> you know and everyone's like he didn't like comfort you and he said no 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 he, he said fix what you did wrong and go on then on the way home he's like yeah it was okay you did all right from everything I've read you were already an independent thinker did you run afoul of some of your teachers and coaches even in high school um, I, I didn't really run afoul, but I always challenged. I wouldn't say authority because I did accept authority, but I always challenged people when I um, thought that things were not right. Um, I met Jesse Owens at a young age, and because of that, I started studying about Jesse, which enabled me to study a lot about history. Mm-hmm. I love history, um, whether it's, it's, it's sports, uh, history, politics, everything. So when I got into high school, I knew a lot about a lot of things because I studied that. Right. And so... A lot of times people would say things. I'm like, I know that's not true. Or, or oh, really? a coach would come up and say, try this handoff. And I'd say, wait a minute, they did that in the 30s. You know? So I had issues. But, but, but I, I do respect, even now, authority. And, and I think like a lot of young men, we look for people to look up to. And in my whole career, I was so fortunate that I had a, an amazing father who was an amazing husband. And then I met the most amazing coach and had the most amazing manager. I was just lucky. All right, we take the trip to the University of Houston with Carl Lewis when we return right here on Center Stage. Welcome back to Center Stage. Our guest is nine-time Olympic gold medal winner, Carl Lewis. So in 1979, you graduate high school. Mm -hmm. 
You decide to go to the University of Houston, Villanova, which is close to where you live, <laughs> pretty good track program. They want you. You go to Houston. Why? When I went to visit all these schools, every school was great. Villanova was great. But when I went to Houston, it was the worst visit I went on of all the seven visits I went on. But Coach Telez sat down and he started talking about the sport and talking about um, here's what we need to do. And it just fascinated me that this that he said, you come here, you can be a long jumper, and I think you can be an Olympic champion. He showed me video in the afternoon, and I just went home mesmerized because all of a sudden I knew nothing. And, and I just said, I've got to go there because that guy knows everything, and I know nothing. Um, and he didn't talk about winning team titles. He talked about what we can do for you athletically and academically, period. And, and he sold me. Now, he, he was your lifetime coach. What, what was the connection there, Carl, with Telez and you? First of all, immediately um, we got along because the first meeting we had, um, I sat right down with him and I looked him right in the eye and I said, I want to be a millionaire and I never want a real job. Just like that. And he kind of looked at me for about five seconds and he said, well, we got to go to work. <laughs> you know? And the sport was amateur. Mm -hmm. So he challenged me. I, I was after practice every single day, the beginning. Every day. And it was kind of a joke because I always stayed late and I wanted I wanted to be the best. And he understood that. Now, in 1980, Carl, you qualified for the U.S. Olympic team in the long jump in the 4x100. And then we boycott the Olympics. How devastating was that? I was 18. I was the youngest male on the Olympic team. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't old enough to get it, to be honest. I saw a lot of the older athletes. They were all upset. and Arr! But I just didn't get it. I was like, oh, I'll go back to the next one. You so know, you like weren't crushed. No, no, I was like, kids do. Oh, I'll go to the next one. Like, now, like you're going to go to the Olympics forever. Right. <laughs> you almost did. Now, in, 18, <laughs> in 1981, you begin to dominate in everything. You improve your long jump distance by a half meter. The sprinting is unbelievable as well. What do you owe to the tremendous improvement? What oh, happened? Coach Telez, he changed my technique completely. And so that was the thing I had so much confidence in. And so my sophomore year, the technique came around. And then I exploded. Uh, I set the road record for the first time. Um, I was 19, right? and there was no looking back. All right, now in 81, you won the James Sullivan Award as the nation's top amateur athlete. But in February of that year, you lost a long jump match to Larry Myricks at the TAC Indoor Championships. Yeah. And you never lost another one for like, what, 300 years. years? I know. <laughs> I, I deserve to lose it because I set the road record in February. I won the national championship in uh, in March, NCAA, and with the second farthest jump in history, I was on top of the world. I came in here cocky and got my butt kicked. Now we're going to be talking a lot about um, the long jump. The, you had an aversion to jumping at high altitude. You didn't want to do right. it. Explain the difference between jumping for, for our viewers, high altitude and low altitude, and why you didn't want to do it at high altitude. The world record was at high altitude. Um, and that was a Bob Beeman. Bob right? Beeman, yes. Okay. The air is thinner, so it's easier to fly through, so you can get farther distances. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to break the world record outdoors. So I didn't want to have any taint to it. It's not wind aided. It's not anything else. I just wanted to make sure that when I did get that record, that there be no asterisk, no letters by I would be the world record holder. But wasn't Beeman at high altitude? Yes, Beeman was at high altitude. Now, the year of 1982, 28-foot mark and long jumping, that was the holy grail. You did it five times in one year. How could you change the paradigm so much? One man it was so much better than everybody else. How's that possible? My goal was the world record. Mm -hmm. I never went into a competition competing against the other athletes. And um, the expectation was so high. It wasn't just jumping well, but also never fouling. And fouling is when you go over the board and they disqualify a right. jump. More than 60% of my wins came on the first jump. 
So I, I would set challenges. Like one year I said, I want to have every single jump over 28 feet, all six, no fouls. And I did it. It was just the expectation and then having the best coach probably of the century. Uh, I was fortunate to be in that environment. And so I put all that in and I just, I just was always focused on the world record. And then I made jumps, 27 foot jumps or 26 foot jumps, unacceptable. I said, we will not foul and we will not jump 26 feet, period. So if it's, if it's not 28, then it's not a successful day. Now, you jumped 30 feet one time, and, and I keep reading, well, it shouldn't have been called a foul. Right. Was it a foul or not in retrospect? It was not a foul. There was a, he had misinterpreted the rules um, because of the way the rule is written. There's a set of clay at the end of the board. If you make a mark in the clay, it's a foul. If you do not make a mark in the clay, it's a legal jump. Okay. Well, what happened in the old rules, and people that made no long jumping, if your foot went over the end. So the judge, in this great big meet misinterpreted the rule. He said his foot went over the end, but there was no mark in the clay. Now, as well as jumping, you become a sprinter and you become great at it as well. When did you decide, okay, I, I could be really great at this too? Because you seem like the type, just meeting you, you didn't want to do anything where you weren't really good at it. Right. When I was in high school, I was state champion, 100, 200 long jump. Right. But when I went to college, I said, I just want to be a long jumper. So my freshman year, our best sprinter at Houston was injured, so I be kind of became the, be the best sprinter. And I enjoyed that. My sophomore year, um, I started sprinting again, and I remember people saying, oh, you can't uh, sprint, you're a long jumper, when's the long jump? So I kind of said, wait a minute here, I'm, I beat you last week and you're talking about the long jump. So it really motivated me to sprint more. And then I won the NCAA in the 60 in long jump, and they started the Jesse Owens comparisons. I just met him and He's like my idol, and now they're comparing me to him. I like that. You know, in those days, world's greatest athlete, heavyweight champion, fastest man in the world. That was it. Right. These, there were a few titles that meant everything. And I said, if I'm the fastest man in the world, I can get close to that millionaire thing. Remember? That didn't get out. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, you, you said earlier that you met Jesse Owens. What was the, the situation where you did? And were you great at that time, or were you still young? When I first met Jesse, I was um, young, 13 years old. There was like a local Jesse Owens meet. And my father actually met Jesse when he was young. I was just mesmerized because I was able to hear him speak and talk. And he, and he used me as an example because I was a little scrawny kid. And it, was, it just kind of transformed me. Not Like I said, not just athletically, but from a historical part. When I started reading about his races and I read about Hitler, then I read about... And then I read about how he had to fight throughout his career to raise his family. And, and it just changed me. To see him again later and then to be compared with him, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. If, if you're given this kind of talent and then the ability and the parents and the family, it's got to be so much a higher power that um, you have to really appreciate it and just be the best you can. Well, Carl tried to do something that Jesse Owens had done in the 1984 Olympic Games. Did he get it done? We'll talk about that. The center stage continues right here on Yes. Welcome back to Center Stage, everybody. That is Carl Lewis. I'm Michael Kay. Uh, so Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin won four gold medals. And you said, I'm going to do that. Why did you set that? Just because of your idolization of Jesse Owens? Well, it was kind of a couple of things. I remember in 1981, um, at the end of that year, I went to my coach and I said, do you think I could get four like Jesse? And he says, we have to do a lot of work. So I started that year planning to do it. It took three years of adding events and trying different events. I didn't know that I was going to have a shot, really shot at getting it until the Olympic trials. I won the Olympic trials easily. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can do this thing. And then after the hundred meters, I said, it's a wrap. <laughs> you know, right. I've, uh, if I stay focused, it's a wrap. 
So the 100 meters were the only one you were doubtful of? The 100 meters is it. And, and the thing is, it's always the toughest event. Um, think about it. If, if you make one mistake, you lose. If you make that one mistake at the start, you have 99 meters to be pissed off. <laughs> no. Right. So if, if once we get that one over with, then every every other one, you have a little bit more room. All right. So that was the first goal. Uh, that was 9.99 seconds. Mm -hmm. uh, you win your second with a long jump of 28.01 feet. And you achieved that on your first jump. Right. The second jump, you foul, and then you pass on the other jumps. And that ticked people off. Oh, yeah. So tell me why you pass on the other jumps, because obviously you always want to break Beeman's record. Well... When I went into the Olympics, um, I was getting questions like this. What if you win three golds and one silver? Do you think it's a failure? <laughs> right. it, it became that absurd. Mm -hmm. So, um, And then that year, I was 22 years old, and I was on the cover of a national magazine nonstop from January to September. You know, African-Americans didn't do that in those right. days. There was so much pressure that I was focused on winning the medals. And I competed seven out of eight days in a row. Um, to get those four events. And um, each day you get more and more tired. So my thing was that I was resting for the other event because I still had four 200s left and three relay races. Mm -hmm. And that was really, I was just resting. All right, so you win the other two events, as you mentioned, and you get the four golds. Part of the plan when you went to Houston, you didn't want to work and you wanted to be a millionaire. So you would think that the four gold medals, the money's just going to be rolling right. in. Did it roll in the way you thought it was going to? Well, you know, after the games, there was a big challenge. That started a couple of years before when I started challenging the system. So the reality is that the sport itself said, gosh, this guy's, you know, he's winning and he's doing this and he's talking about money and he's trying to make it better for everyone. But we like the way it is. Right. So I was getting no support from the USA track and field, the Federation. They were actually fighting me, trying to keep me down instead of supporting. So things went very well, not as well as they could have and should have. And, and to say that we did everything right, uh, absolutely not. My goodness gracious. I was 22 years old. I was being dissected in a way that, it, that was unprecedented at the time. Everything that I did was like, he's calculated. He's this, he's that. You know, he grabbed a flag. Oh my goodness, he planted the guy. So there was really nothing I could do that was right. Um, humble doesn't come to mind when, when people talk about Carl, Carl Lewis because mm -hmm. you were great and you knew you were great. Edwin Moses also a gold medalist in the Olympics, said, quote, he rubs it in too much. A little humility is in order. That's what Carl lacks. Right. Do you agree with what he said well, now, well, all these well, years I, later? I understand um, what Edwin was coming from. When I came in, um, I was very young. Edwin was about five years older, and he was the biggest guy in the sport. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, this 19-year-old kid comes out of nowhere, and he, two years later, he's the biggest athlete in the sport. He's just winning everything, and he's he's coming to the meets early, stand late, he's getting all the money and everything and all this. So I understand that. All right, you, you've got to explain this to me. I've never understood. So you do sign some lucrative endorsement deals, but you're still an amateur. How, how, how's that possible? <laughs> it went in stages. And so the first stage was they created a trust fund. So they put money in a trust fund. You can take it out. Really what it was was an account that you can just go right through to you because they were trying to, to, to keep the word amateur because technically amateurism, you know, is really glorified slavery. It's like some people own you. And so, they're making money. Yeah. And they're making money. Right. And, and I remember I went to a stadium once and there were 80,000 people and I, and I made $200 for this meet. They just, that was a per diem. And one of the guys says, wow, this is great. And I said, bing, where's this money going? You know, 80,000 people are here. We're all getting $200. Mm -hmm. they, they wanted to keep the name there as long as possible because it's about control. 
But once you guys started making money, that then it became a career and you could actually do it longer. Right. And, and that was the thing. Before I came around, people didn't last two and three Olympics. It right. was very difficult. And, and, and my thing was, this is what I did. It was my job. It was what I did for a living. I already established myself as a company. The pride I take in it is that I went to the Olympics and it was always the number one event. And when I was at the Olympic Games, I never thought about what are you making? What are you getting? I was always there to be the best. And the, the most fortunate thing that I look back on my whole career, I was in 10 events and I won nine and I lost one by one foot to my teammate. All right. So I was always my best for my, my country. And when I represented the country, I was always at my best. Now, this is an amazing thing. Prior to the 84 Olympics, you get drafted as a wide receiver in the 12th round by the Cowboys. And you also drafted in the 10th round of the NBA draft by the Bulls. Now, you said you never played football. <laughs> Could you have played? When I was drafted, we called the Cowboys. And actually, that year in 84, I made more than the highest paid Cowboy in okay. 84. Right. So it was an easy decision then. Plus, you know, in track, it's a great thing. The best blockers in the world are those white lines. Don't come in here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, it was the right thing to do. Uh, how about the Bulls? You would have been on the same team as Jordan. I can't even palm a grapefruit. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, you know, Michael and I met at the Olympic Games, and I would have been on the same team. But we we, we didn't have a lot of talk because I said, well, I'm not even discussing anything with you unless I um, get more than that Jordan cat. <laughs> we're not even having a discussion unless, unless it must have been more. It must have been quite a compliment that you were that great an athlete that these sports would draft you, waste the draft pick per se, yeah, just yeah. on the go, on, on the come lie, I think this guy could do it. It was that year. 84, everything but happened. But baseball ignored you. And, and yeah, Baseball ignored me, exactly. <laughs> you, could, you actually could have made more in baseball than, than track and field. It, no, baseball was more than. Yeah. yeah, they should have drafted me. They ought to thought about yeah, it. Yeah, you would have thought about it for sure. <laughs> when we return, we'll talk about the rivalry between Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson. That's right here on Center Stage. <laughs> this is Center Stage, and the man at the International Olympic Committee voted as the sportsman of the century. Carl Lewis is here with us. Take me through the preparation before a race or a jump. What goes on in your mind? Is there a song in your head? Do you have superstitions? Good question. It's For me, it's, it was technical. Um, I would just focus on what I had to do. It would start with the night before. You know how people, they say they uh, count sheep to go to sleep? Right. Well, I would actually go over the technical aspect of my event before I went to sleep. So if I had to run 100, push out of the blocks, drive, and I would just think that over and over and fall asleep with that note. And then the day, I would just think about those particular elements. It would go on the whole time mm -hmm. until the person says, come to your mark. And then we get down into the blocks, and then my mind would go blank and listen for the gun, like you would do if you wanted to hear something from a distance. Mm -hmm. And in the long jump, the same thing. But the difference in the long jump is that I would count my steps on the runway. Because the long jump is an event that you can't get ahead of yourself. You're running 50 meters, and you have to hit an 8-inch board at full speed and not foul with wind and environment. 23 is your steps, 23 right? are my steps. In races, it seems like you guys don't like each other. Is that trash talking? Uh, there, there, there's a lot of trash talking. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was kind of show for me. I know a lot of people got very emotional about that, but a lot of it was uh, for show. Now in 84, you also set the all-time indoor long jump rep record, which has never been broken. What do you remember about that? It, by the way, it was set here in New York mm -hmm. at the Garden uh, on that old wooden track. I took the lead at about 27.6 or something like that. And there was another guy, Larry Marks, who came down and had a personal best and took the lead. And I had two jumps left. Well, um, the runway was short on the indoor circuit. So I, I had to cut it down to 19 steps. And the order to get 19 steps in, there was a little, I had to start from the bank of the track. They found a little piece of wood 
uh, just a little piece about about a yard long that they could lay down on the end, but it kept moving. So I came down on my fifth jump and it moved and I jumped and I was just short of, of, of catching Myricks and I had one jump to go. Well, I went down there and my sister Carol was there. So sister Carol came down, sat physically sat on the track and held this piece of wood down here. And at the time I was a world record holder at 28-2. And I went back, I went down, ran down, hit the board perfect, 28-10 and a quarter world record. The place, I mean, just erupted. And when it happened, everyone was silent because here again, I'm three years into this win streak. Mm -hmm. Broke the record by eight inches. And no one has really come close since indoors. Uh, let's talk Ben Johnson. Um, you beat him uh, in the 84 Olympic Games in the 100 meters. Mm -hmm. He's from Canada, if, if you don't know. In 87, you finished second, tying for existing 100 meters world record of 9.93. And he shocked the sports world with an astounding 9.83. Right. Did you think something was up? Well, we, we all knew that Ben was on drugs by then. Everyone knew what was going on with that. Why did they stop group. it before he beat you then? Well, the way the testing was, they were able to avoid the testing. It was easy to get around the testing because there was no random drug testing at the time. Right. You just tested at big events. You got on it, then you got off in time, and that was it. Um, and so in 87, I actually called for random testing. Um, and everyone says, oh, you're bad because you're losing. I understood that the drug issue could take our sport down because I was looking at it from a business standpoint, not just from wins and losses. Did you hate him because of this? I didn't look at it that way. Um, my thing was in 87 when he ran set the road record and we were going into 88, um, I actually thought I could beat him even on drugs. That was where my energy was. So I never really hated him. Ben was good for me, um, not just athletically, but it was good business. It was great for the sport. I'm American. And defending Olympic champion, here's a guy in Canada. And Canada was thinking, oh, that's big Americans. They think they're all of that. So, you know, the good guy, bad guy thing, it, it elevated both of us. So I, I looked at it from that standpoint, too. In 87, your dad, who you were very close with, passes away. Tell us what you did at the, uh, at the funeral. Um, my father uh, was, was really a pretty amazing man. And, and, and I still look back and I was like, wow, he was only around for one games. And... I just came up with this idea of giving him my gold medal. And when I flew home for the funeral, and I just pulled the medal out of my pocket and set it in his hand. And his hand was kind of in a, in a way that it, would, it could actually slide in, and it was really kind of strange. And so I slid there, and I'll never forget it. People were kind of shocked. My mother said, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I, want, I want Dad to have this medal. And my mother said, um, that's your medal. <laughs> you won it. And I said, don't worry about it. I'll win it back. And everyone just kind of stopped and froze. And... That was the last time I saw him, and they closed the coffin, and that was it. How much do you miss him? I, I miss him a lot. I, I relate back to him all the time. The toughest thing for me for the first year or so was running something happening or needing some advice and running to the phone and picking it up, and then he wasn't there. Right, right. So that, to me, was the biggest thing to get over. 1988 Summer Olympics in uh, Seoul, Korea. Um, you lose to Ben Johnson in the 100 meters, although you set an American record. Then they drug test him and it comes back positive and they take the medal away and then you end up getting the gold. All these years later, does it upset you that you never got the glory of actually getting the medal right then that day? Um, I'll tell you something. When the race was over, I went to congratulate him, which obviously wasn't easy because I was emotional. Um, and you and, also thought that he was Yeah, and I clean. thought that he was, he was not clean. I saw his eyes were yellow and I saw all this stuff. And um, he kind of, brushed me off a little bit 
And then I made him shake my hand and did that. And he kind of, you know, kind of brushed me off. Really? And so I left the stadium faster than I ran the race. <laughs> you know, I look back now with more pride because I really think that was a moment. The, the race and then the shaking the hand and then walking out with my chest, my head up was, was my challenge. I think that maybe if I failed that challenge, maybe I wouldn't have the gold medal. So they take the gold medal away from Ben Johnson, mm -hmm. but he was already on the podium and oh Canada. Does it is it something that you resent that you never got to hear our national anthem? They just gave you the gold medal later, right? Um, they did. Two things. When we were on the podium, Ben never smiled. So here's a guy who won the Olympic gold medal, feet of his life. He never smiled. He was always talking about him getting another Ferrari, yada, yada. But there was no joy. And for me, I was like, let's get this over with so I can go out of here. I am not in the mood to hear O Canada right now. <laughs> but I won the long jump before I got the medal. So it was kind of like I'd already heard that. I'd been through it. I'd been up there. And by the time this happened, it was kind of um, icing on the cake. More with Carl Lewis when we return on Center Stage. Welcome back to Center Stage. Our guest is track and field legend Carl Lewis. Now, um... In 88, we were just talking about Ben Johnson, you tested positive for prohibitive drugs. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, I, I, it was a cold medicine, um, which now they've taken off the ban list because it's, it's below the threshold. So basically it was a cold medicine that was in um, an herbal supplement we were taking in those days. So yeah, I, and I got the call and they were like, what, what did you take? And I said, well, we just took this and they asked me to send all of it. So I sent them all the things that I took, vitamins and everything, and they ingested it and tested it and found out what it was. So they realized... What they had then was inadvertent use because what happened when they first started testing, they were, it was the infancy of the program. They didn't know what effects were on people, different things. So they just kind of threw everything in. It was the level of taking um, two Sudafed tablets. That was the level then, which now is not on the list. Of course, people are going to try to make a big deal out of that. And, you know, it, they can do it all they want. All right. Now in uh, 91 World Championships in Japan, uh, you're 30 at this point, and many people in track and field say this was the greatest performance by anybody ever. What made it so special that day? First of all, my teammate Leroy Burrell was, had been beating me like a drum mm -hmm. <laughs> recently in the 100. And Mike Powell, the long jumper, was getting close. I, I went into the, the world championship saying, Leroy had been beating me. Powell is close. I had a great career. So either I'm going to step my game up or I'm going to retire and let the young kids have the sport. And so I really, really worked harder that year and focus on the, the things. I changed my diet. And so when I came to Tokyo, it was a moment of truth for me. It was like, there's a time when you have to retire. Is this my time? So I'm going to fight like crazy to find out. You found out. I mean, you, you won everything in that meet. Uh, at the time, Leroy had the road record at 9.90, which he set here in New York mm -hmm. two months earlier on me. I was second. To run 9.86 there um, and be the first person to break 9.90, and to have the world record, it was just phenomenal. And for Leroy to run 988 to break the world record and to lose, and then that's my teammate, the guy that I train with and I'm best friends with all the time, it was just made it more incredible. All right, Mike Powell, you have a long jumping rivalry with him. What was that like? What type of athlete, in your opinion, was he? Uh, Mike Powell, a tremendous athlete. I, I admire him a lot because here's a guy who went to three Olympics. He, he had two silvers and a fifth place, and I won the gold. He came at the wrong time. Right. And, and so when we go to Tokyo, I beat him by, by an inch at the Nationals. And so after the long, after the 100 meters, I said, you know, I am going to break the world record tonight for the long jump final. I was certain 
I'm going to break the road record tonight and I'm going to retire from the long jump. It's a wrap and I'm just going to sprint. I told Coach Telez that. It was about three in the afternoon. And I went out that night and I had my best long jump ever. I had three jumps over 29 and a 28-11. And Mike Proud breaks the world record. Um, and Coach Telez told me all along, he says, look, the great thing about the long jump is that you only need one jump. And he said, Mike jumped well. He jumped into 28s a couple of times. Then he had this 29-4. But I had two jumps left. And so when Mike jumped 29-4, I said, oh, here we go. I've got to jump 29-6 to win the daggone thing. So there was no doubt in my mind I was going to jump past that record. And my last two jumps were 29 feet. But I was just short. And the thing is that he was a long jumper. He didn't have the 100 or the 200. He just focused. And he ended up getting the record. 92 summer games are in Barcelona. You qualify. Um, are you starting to think the sands of time are running out? This is probably it. Well, it's funny because in 92, after 91, I was like rejuvenated. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. I'm not old yet. You right, know? Right. And then I, I, then I went to the trials and I was sick and I didn't know it. And I only made it in the long jump in the relay. Right. Then when I found that I was ill, then I was motivated to say, look, I'm not gone yet. I was just sick. Okay, people. So that motivated me going into Barcelona. That really helped. And you also beat Mike Powell in the long jump in the Olympics. So what did that mean? Well, that was big. And Mike and I have talked many times after that. That was a killer to him because he really felt like he's a world record holder. He's the world champion. And I came right back to the Olympics and beat him. And, and I really wanted that gold medal because at the time, that was the only individual event. And I really felt like this was a statement meet for me. I'm not gone yet. And I went out. And jumped my best jump on the first jump. And Mike chased it the whole time and couldn't catch it. All right. So in 96, you, you win your fourth Olympic uh, jump gold medal. Uh, so it gives you a total of nine. Uh, tied for the most Olympic medals of all time at that time. Michael Phelps has since broken. Right. Why did that matter so much to you to get to that nine? Well, my thing was I've been around forever. <laughs> and um, remember, I was 18 in my first Olympics. Now I'm 35 at the last. Mm -hmm. I just felt like, how do you want to go out? And the day before the finals, um, I went in and I got down to the third jump and, and I was in 14th place. So you had to be in the top 12 to make the final. And I remember getting on the runway and I said, no matter how many, you've won three in a row. If you go out here and flame out, then the story is going to be that you were too old. You shouldn't have been here. Right. So. When I made the finals, I went home that night saying, I can win this because they're going to be scared to death saying, what the heck is Carl going to do again? Um, so for me, it was it was almost a legacy thing. Um, you, you came this far, you may as well go all the way because no matter whether you like it or not, that's going to be your legacy at the end. 97, you end up retiring. Now, you majored in TV film in college. Uh, you produced the 2011 horror film Rift. You've done everything great in your career. And then the 1993 performance of the National right. Anthem, Bulls in the Nets. A little off-key, how much does that haunt you? Does it haunt you? It just, it is what it is. But I, I tell you, a lot of kids see that, and then they, and they're on the internet, and they say, oh, I saw you at the Anthem. Yeah, da, da. But you know what? I didn't realize you were that fast. So I, I look at it like the Hollywood thing. You know, some people can say, oh, my goodness. Um, the anthem and yada, 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 yada. And they laugh and go through the whole thing. And I'll go and say, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm nine gold medals, 18-year career, and the anthem's what you remember. I mean, that's okay. Right. You know? Can you sing so it better? It's a Can part. It's a part. I don't. I had surgery again really? on nodules, so I don't do it all. I'm done. Has anybody ever asked you since then to do it? Well, I did I did do it afterwards. Oh, I did, did it for, um, for a basketball game on right. CBS. 
after that. And it just it. so happened that Jim Nance, you right. know, who's a CBS uh, guy, uh, went to University of Houston. So I did it for a game for them. And that was it. I'm retired. He's not retired from hit and run. That's coming up next on Center Stage. This is Center Stage. We're here with nine-time Olympic gold medal winner Paul Lewis. But if you thought that was hard, now you have hit and run. <laughs> oh First goodness. thing that comes to your mind, just give me okay. the answer. All right, we try. Favorite place or track to compete at? Um, at home, at the University of Houston. I loved it. That's where I was, was every day. It was easy. Favorite meal? Vegetarian lasagna. Okay. Competitor you admired the most? Uh, Leroy Burrell, my teammate. Most memorable victory? Oh, Tokyo 100 meters. Your most disappointing loss? 8,800 meter final. Best piece of advice anyone ever gave to you? My father said, do what you think is right. Favorite Olympic moment? The 100 meter final, the first one, the first gold medal. In 84. In 84. Favorite or most respected athlete of all time? Oh, oh, Jesse Owens, no doubt. Favorite musician? Ella Fitzgerald. Favorite actor or actress? Um, my, my favorite actor is, is Denzel, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Denzel. I love his work. Favorite late night snack? You're sitting there in your sweatpants. Oh, potato chips. Are you really? kidding me? I, yeah, that's my vice. I don't like sweets. It's potato chips. Can you do a whole bag? Uh, is a Pope Catholic? <laughs> Last time I checked, he was. <laughs> and wear red Pradas? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final one. If you were trapped in a foxhole, what person would you want there with you to help you get out? Nelson Mandela. Did you ever meet him? Yes, I did. I Impressive did in person? I, it, beyond belief. Uh, that's Because I'd say, we can stay here because, you, you know, I know you're going to be fine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nelson Mandela. A couple of meters left in the 100-meter show. That is Center Stage. That's coming up with Carl Lewis on Center Stage. This is Center Stage, and we've had a good time talking with Carl Lewis. Now, Carl, tell me about the Carl Lewis Foundation. What does it mean to you, and what does it do? Well, the Carl Lewis Foundation um, was founded. Really, the, the objective was to get kids active in sports and education, basically the way I was raised. And it, it means a lot to me because what we do is we give scholarships. We sponsor uh, youth track and field programs in Houston and in New Jersey. Through the foundation, I've been able to, to, to you know, give over $100,000 in scholarships. 100% uh, of the funds go directly to programs because I fund all the other parts of it. Um, and it's just an exciting thing that we can do through my relationship with Nike and Hershey and all these companies. We could donate things to these kids. We give uniforms and all of that. So I try to not only talk about giving back in, in the sense of teaching and coaching kids like Willingboro High School or, or the, the programs that I deal with, but also mentor because we've got to, you know, mentor young people. I always say we have enough fast black boys. We need some black men, you mm -hmm. know, and I think it's important to challenge our young people to be the best they can be. Do you wish, Carl, that you were a kinder and gentler Carl Lewis when you were great? Not that you're not great now, right, but right. great as an athlete. Well, no, I, I I accept exactly who I was mm -hmm. because um, I do a lot of things with young people and they say, oh, my life was so tough and everything happened. And I say, you know, if, if you didn't live the life you lived, you wouldn't be where you are. Um, I can look back and look at myself and say, I did a lot of great things young. I did a lot of things that kids my age do. But you know what? 99.9% .9 of them, they did the same things that I did and I accept that. But they, were, they didn't have a spotlight. So that's just something I had to deal with. Everybody has plans, and I know you're a big planner. So what's your plan? What's your plan right now for your future? Well, well, really, mine is just continuing to expand on the things that I've done. I don't know about politics in the future. That's a possibility. I'm going to continue to do work with my foundation and the charity, the things that I do. Also, 
expand my company because it's something that I want to leave a legacy from that part. You drive fast? Uh, yes, I do. I do, but never over the speed limit, but fast. Do you run anymore at all? Um, I, I don't. I, I work out. I, I, you know what I do? I love to work outside. I, I um, have a big, big yard, uh -huh. and I like to do any pickup things, um, pickup sports. Let's go play volleyball. It's anything, right. anything. I love to do that. But I'll run sometimes. But I love to ride my bike as well. Carl, thanks so much. This Thank was you a lot very of fun. much. Thank you. That's Carl Lewis. <laughs> I'm Michael Kay, and this is Center Stage. So long, everybody.